Please open your Bible to Proverbs 1. Proverbs chapter 1. As we continue our series that we began last week in the book of Proverbs. Now one of the fascinating things about living in our world of digital information is how you can learn about or how to do just about anything through a quick search on the internet. And I, I know it says a lot about me and the world that I've grown up in, but there are not many things that I do that don't begin with some kind of, of question, some time, kind of query into an internet search bar. Now, since we moved into our home three years ago, I've really enjoyed doing various projects around the house and, and building things and, and making improvements. And every project that I have done has started with an inter- internet search that starts with the word, how? This morning, I thought it might be interesting to look back at some of those things I've searched for over just the last couple months. And I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, Google catalogs all these things. So I've searched for things like how to build built-in bookcases from Ikea bookshelves, how to keep birds out of hanging baskets, how to program your garage door opener, and one that I was surprised to see, and I'm sure Christine is even more surprised to hear, how to make your own backyard putting green in just eight steps. Maybe, Christine, did you search that? (laughs) But it's not just projects that I'll be searching for. It's pretty much anything. Uh, Over the last couple of months, I also searched for how old you have to be for a job in Maryland. I was not looking for a job. Just curious for my children. How much is a shekel? How many Chick-fil-A restaurants are in Atlanta? (laughs) The internet holds out to us this promise of access to any information we could ever need to know. So long as you type in the right parameters, you'll be able to find it. And this can give us a sense that we have the knowledge that we need to successfully do anything, to successfully navigate the world. At our fingertips is all the wisdom that we need. That's the sense that it gives us. For those of us that are over, let's say, 30 years old, it's helpful to remember that this is our world today. Whether we like it or not, this is the world that we live in. If you're under 30, this is the only world you've ever known. And increasingly for our society, when it comes to not just, not just the small day-to-day how-to questions of life, but the biggest questions that we could ask, we don't turn so much to parents or to family, friends, or to experts, but more often than not, our collective habit and impulse is to turn to the internet, to turn to a search bar. Now, I bring this up because we need to be aware of this tendency. We need to be on, on guard of the dangers of this tendency. As individuals, I think one of the, one of the dangers is that we, become, we come to see the Bible as less relevant and as somewhat disconnected from real life and the real questions that we faced day in, day out. That's our temptation as individuals. See the Bible as less relevant. I'm like, I've got all these questions. The first place I need to go, internet search bar. As parents... We need, to be able, we need to see that our children are being shaped by this world. And our call as parents is to shape them, as parents, not just as parents, but as a community, to shape them through God's word, not through internet search bars. Now, at its heart, Proverbs is a book that's meant for young people. It's a book for what Proverbs describes as, as the simple or the naive. I talked about this group last week. This is not saying that they are stupid but that they are impressionable. They are easily shaped. They are learning. And this is what adolescence is. This is what it means to grow up. 
What's, what's that one question, kids, that you get all the time from, from parents and your parents, not your parents, but other, other adults? What do you want to be when you grow up? It's about, adolescence is about, in one sense, answering the question, who, who am I? Who am I going to grow up to be? One psychologist says it this way, adolescence is the quest for a sense of identity. So where should we go to learn how to live? As a young person, where should you go to learn how to live? Who should you listen to? Well, we could go to the internet. There's one site on the internet, WikiHow, perhaps you've come across it, whose stated mission is to help everyone in the world learn how to do anything. That's what it exists for. Help everyone in the world to learn how to do anything. And they describe themselves as the most trusted how-to site on the internet. This morning I came to discover that they have a page that provides 15 steps on how to find yourself. How to find yourself. These steps include things like, step three, start relying on yourself. Or step five, seek out a passion. Oof, sorry about that. Is this okay? All right. Step nine, let go of the need to be loved by all. 15 steps on how to find yourself. Uh, I can tell you this, that if you choose to follow this 15-step program, you will not be satisfied with the results. Uh, listening to the internet is not going to lead you into the path of life and understanding. So that's one, one path you can go down. The other path is the one that the Bible holds out to us. It's a different view of reality, a true understanding of the world that begins and ends with God. And that reality has God at its center. It doesn't deny the world, it doesn't ignore how the world works, but it confronts the world and how it works. And it sees all things as structured according to a, the will of a, a creator God who is sovereign over all. And as the son of Proverbs stands on the precipice of becoming an adult, he's confronted by reality. His father brings him face to face with these two paths, and he wants his son to know what lies ahead. As I said last week, the father isn't content with his son going out and living and then learning from his mistakes. It's not live and hope for the best. The father wants the son to learn and then live. We're going to be looking together at Proverbs 1, beginning in verse 10 and reading through verse 19. This is the word of God for us. I'm actually going to start reading in verse 8 here. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Verse 11, if they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors." Do you pray with me? Father, we pray with the psalmist. We ask, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. By your spirit, help us with our whole hearts to seek you. 
May we not wander from your commandments. Give us grace to store up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach us your statutes this morning. As your word is declared, may we delight in your testimonies as much as in all riches. Help us to meditate on your precepts, to fix our eyes on your ways, to delight in your statutes, to not forget your word. Help us by your spirit. Amen. Amen. The text that we are looking at today is clear. It is blunt. It is a stern warning from a father to his son. Avoid the invitation of sinners. Be on guard against greed, for that path leads to death. Verse 10 provides us with with a heading for this section, or outline, if you will, and it has two parts. My son, he begins, verse 10, if sinners entice you. That's the, the first part, the offer. And then his admonition, his, his warning, do not consent. This is going to be our outline. Point one, the offer. If sinners entice you. The father speaks to his son, and he tells him that sinners will entice you. This is reality. It's not, hey, maybe this will happen someday. No, the father is direct and to the point. Sinners will entice you. The word for sinners here is best understood as those who who miss the mark of God's standard. But not only do they miss the mark and fail to do what is right and just and fair, their sin is a habit, and they do wrong to those around them. They are sinners. But they're not content just to sin off on their own. They want to draw others into their wrongdoing, into their sin. And the father knows that, that his son needs more than just an objective statement, a blanket warning. He could have just left it as, don't go with the sinners. But he wants his son to learn what to look for. So he gives an example, a model of reality. This is what we talked about Proverbs are. They're, they're little models of reality. They're In this case, it's a story to enter into so that we can hear what it sounds like when sinners entice. Here is how they seek to persuade someone. Verse 11, if they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. This invitation should shock us. It's bold, it's violent, it is jarring. The invitation, it sounds like a, it's a pack of animals on the prowl, looking to overtake their prey, looking to ambush the innocent. The plan of these sinners is to wait for this innocent person to come so that they might kill him. They describe it as, as being like the grave, like a pit swallowing the innocent whole. That's crazy. That's what they're inviting this son to do. But why would they do this? What is their motivation? What's the goal? Verse 13 holds out the point. Kill the innocent, and we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. What motivates this band of sinners is financial gain. Their motivation, bluntly, is greed. What they promise to the son is is instant wealth. If you come with us, 
you can find all kinds of precious goods. You can fill your house with riches. And they assure the son that if he just joins them, they will share all things equally. We will all have one purse. Throw in your lot among us. These sinners, they they know who the son is. He is impressionable. He's easily enticed. He's eager to fit in and to go along with his peers. And for every young person, for every old person here, they've walked through this. There is that pressure, this peer pressure, this group of people around you that you might want to please, you might want to go along with. You're invited to come along with and join in. And they aim to convince him by making sure that that he feels included. So they talk about us and we. Look at that. I mean, how much it comes up. Come with us. Let us. We shall find. We shall fill. We will all have one purse. They want him to feel a part of their group. They want others to join in their evil. Now, while I personally have experienced the enticement of sinners, I've never been approached and I bet you probably haven't either, by anyone to go and lie in wait for blood. This seems a little out there. What does this have to do with us? What we should see here is that this is how sin works. Sin brings with it an appetite that is never satisfied. It always craves more. Sin and sinners, they want more people to join in, others to join the violent mob, Others to join the lie. Others to celebrate the wrong. Sinners are always inviting more people into their sin because everyone has this desire that others value what they value. That others celebrate what they see as important, what they see as reality. And this is what we see playing out in, in big cultural movements across our society. So it's, it, we see it in the push in the social acceptability of abortion or pornography or illicit drugs or gambling or the entire LGBTQ agenda. All of it is about getting people to embrace the values that sinners have for themselves. And Proverbs brings us face to face with the offer of sinners and wants us to see it for what it is, a path that promises prosperity but leads to death. The father wants his son to see through this offer, to see through it. So at the moment of decision for the son, we we see this invitation, we hear this invitation, this company of sinners enticing the son. At the moment of decision for the son, the father interrupts the offer and gives his son a warning, which is our second point, the warning. Second half of verse 10, do not consent. The word there for consent also also has a connotation to yield. Do not give in. Do not go. This is what he says in verse 15. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. The father describes all of life as something that is, is lived as a journey. We're on a road. We're on a path. And this is a theme that we're going to encounter many times in Proverbs. And we'll see that Proverbs is not as interested. The wisdom of Proverbs is not so much interested in just doing certain things as it is in walking in a certain way, in in thinking in a certain way. This is the way of wisdom. Wisdom is not just gathering a bunch of information and memorizing it. It's not knowing more than everyone else. The wisdom of the Bible is something that, that 
permeates, it influences every area of our lives. To be wise according to Proverbs means that everything you think, you say, you do, you desire is, is brought into harmony with the order that our creator God has given the world. That's what wisdom is. Everything you think, say, do, and desire is brought into harmony with the order that our creator God has given the world. One commentator says, it's the skill to navigate through the maze of life so that one conducts one's life to the greatest benefit of oneself and the community. It's the way of eternal life. On this journey of life, there are various roads that we encounter, various paths that we can choose to go down, but not every path leads to life. In fact, many of these paths lead to death. Biblical wisdom is a matter of choosing the right path. It's a matter of walking in the fear of the Lord in all things. And so the father's appeal to the son is to keep his foot from the way, from the path of these sinners, to hold back your foot from their paths. It's a creative way of saying, don't even entertain the temptation. Don't even take a step in their direction. Don't even think, it's not that big of a deal. Or, I mean, everyone else is doing it and they're all right. Temptation when it comes, not if, but when it comes, is something that God calls us to flee. And that's what the Father is calling the Son to. We are called to flee this for our own good, for our own protection. And in our sin, we all have desires for selfish gain. There's a sinful desire to get what we want, whatever it takes. And every day we're presented with opportunities between walking in this path of selfishness or walking in the fear of the Lord. If you're very young and you have a sibling, Perhaps your sibling takes a toy or is playing with a toy that you really want to play with. The temptation of selfish gain is to take it back or do whatever it takes to get it back. Maybe you don't take it back. Maybe it's, Mom, he took it from me. We are called to flee those temptations. James tells us in James 1, 13 through 15, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for cannot, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, it starts so innocent, right? Desire? I just want that. No big deal. Desire, once it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, do you know what that brings forth? Death. Flee temptation. Do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. This is what is at the heart of the father's warning. It's this danger that compels the father to urgently tell his son to flee the invitation of sinners. The warning is strong because the father knows where this path leads. He knows this way. He knows this journey. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. This is not an innocent path. This is not, eh, no big deal. It's an evil path. It's not a slow and passive path. 
like, I'm just going to hang out with them for a little while. Or like if things get a little dicey, then I'll, then I'll roll out. Their feet run to evil. This band of fools, they are going quickly to kill. All the more reason to keep your foot from their path. Because no sooner will you step onto this path than you will be swept up in the current of their evil. Entertaining the offer of, of sinners is like standing on the bank of a rushing river. Leaning over the edge to get a better look. Inching closer. Ever closer to the water. The water looks so clear. I wonder how cold it is. Dip your finger in. Dip your toe in. No sooner do you feel the water than you are swept up in the current. And I have lived long enough, not as long as many of you, some of you, lived long enough to see far too many of my peers go this way. They were young, impressionable, and they wanted to look into that rushing river. We all face that temptation. We all, we all face those desires inside of us. We look, we inch closer and closer. Take heed lest you fall. The Father then uses a picture to describe what's taking place, a, a metaphor that expresses how dangerous taking this path, keeping company with this group, will be. Verse 17 describes how pointless it is to spread out a trap that a bird can clearly see. When, when birds see a trap, do you know what the birds do? They avoid it. I mentioned earlier how one of my recent internet searches was how to keep birds out of hanging baskets. Now, my, my study is right off of our front porch, and we have geraniums hanging on this front porch. And last spring and this spring, one of the, the more difficult parts of my life, which speaks to just the kindness of the Lord in my life, <laughs> is birds that make nests in these hanging baskets on our porch. And so I have searched last year and this year many, many times, how do I keep these birds away from these hanging baskets? And uh, what the solution that I'm trying right now is I got a bunch of plastic snakes and have put them in these hanging baskets. So my thinking goes, and I've got some internet searches to back this up, that birds will see these snakes and stay away. So far, so good. But we're only like a few days in, so two days in, I think. So far, the birds have not made any nests. It's interesting that God has given birds the instinctual sense to avoid traps that will kill them, but God has given them this in instinct. It's, it's a part of who they are. But the father is, has to talk to his son and tell him, you need to learn this. In our sin, we are blind to the traps around us, the traps we set or that are set by others. Because in our sin, do you know what we will do? We'll walk right into them. So we must be taught to, to see in order to know what to avoid. While this group runs to evil and makes haste to shed blood, in the end, they are the very ones who will come out dead. Look at verse 18. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. My son, do not walk in the way with them. They set an ambush for their own lives. This company of fools, they're fools. They're stupid. 
They don't even have bird brains, is what the father is saying. Because here they are, setting a trap, waiting to jump on the innocent, to ambush the innocent, lying in wait for blood. But the trap that they are setting is one that they themselves are going to walk right into. They're like Haman in the book of Esther. If you remember when we went through the book of Esther recently. He wanted more than anything to destroy Mordecai. This is the one thing he desired. He had all of these benefits. But he wanted to destroy Mordecai more than anything else. So his wife tells him, build this huge gallows, 75 feet high, and have Mordecai hanged. Then you'll be, then you'll be happy. Then you'll be satisfied. So that's what he does. He has this huge gallows built. Little does he know that he is the one who will soon hang from those gallows. After telling his son about the offer of sinners and warning him of their way, the father closes his lesson with, with this summary in verse 19. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. What we find here in verse 19, in some sense it should surprise us. Because it seemed that the father's lesson up to this point was about the invitation to lie in wait for blood. That was the offer of sinners. But then we come to verse 19, and the, and the father really broadens the lesson. You see, he's not just addressing the way of this band of sinners who ambushed the innocent, but his lesson has become about the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. To be greedy for unjust gain is, is to simply be out for yourself. It's to be looking out for number one. And it's being willing to step over and step on anyone who gets between you and what you want. It's what the Ten Commandments speak to. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. You shall not crave what you don't have so that you will do anything in your power to get it. And this is where this passage should make us a little bit more uncomfortable. Like the lying in wait for blood stuff didn't really prick me. But craving and covetousness is all around us. It's in us. We see this in our culture's love for power and money. In many ways, our entire economy is structured to thrive in a world where it's right and good to always want more. I saw uh, yesterday CNBC's tagline is live ambitiously. And they exist to empower anyone to see the opportunity that's in front of them and to live ambitiously. Want more. Yesterday, Christine walked into my study and out of the blue, she said, it's kind of ridiculous that the whole point of life is just to have the most money and then retire. I was a little confused. Like, I agree, that's, is, do you mean that's what many people think? That's the point of life? Because that's, like, that's not really the point of life. And she had walked out, and after a couple minutes, I went back to her, and I was like, what, what made you say that? And as I was saying that, I looked to my right, and three of my children are playing the game of life. And then it all came together for me. I was like, oh, that's what you're talking about. The game of life. Yeah, the point, the, the winner is the one who has the most money at the end and retires to millionaire acres. That game of life. Now I get it. 
But it's in this world, this world of riches and prosperity, that the enticement of sinners comes to us. As I've studied this text over the last week, my mind has been drawn to a man that I didn't even know existed until December of 2008. And on that day, December 11th, 2008, in the midst of a collapsing economy, the financial world was rocked when this man, a guy by the name of Bernie Madoff, was arrested. And he was a, something of an icon in American markets and on Wall Street in particular. He'd served as the chairman of NASDAQ. Uh, he'd helped pioneer computerized trading and develop market regulations. And on that day, Madoff was arrested on charges of fraud for running a $65 billion Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme is when I say, hey, I will invest your money, and so you give me your money. But a Ponzi scheme, you don't go and invest anybody's money. You take that money, and you hope that over time you keep getting enough money in that if somebody asks for their money, I can give them money. Madoff never invested anybody's money. He kept that money, and eventually he had to own up to all that he had been doing. He's been described as the wizard of lies and a financial serial killer, affecting the lives of more than 40,000 people in 125 different countries. Many of those people were relying upon what they thought they were making with Madoff for their financial security, because Madoff would have statements sent to these people saying, hey, this is what I've traded over the last month, and this is how well you're doing. And so people saw this on paper and thought, oh, great. When Madoff started his scam back in the 1980s, no one else knew, or at least people chose to ignore what was taking place. The people that Madoff brought into this side of his business were people that you wouldn't really expect to be working in this industry. They weren't people with advanced degrees or financial backgrounds. They were largely impressionable, young, and there, and there was one common denominator among everyone that was involved with Madoff. They were driven by greed. One journalist concluded, what happened was so avoidable and so many people enabled it to happen because of greed. Not only is Madoff's story one of greed, it is, it's tragic as well. Because he drew people in, whether it be as accomplices or as victims, and many of those people either lost everything or killed, them, killed themselves as a result of what Madoff had done. The trap that he set for others was a trap that ended up snaring him and everyone he knew and loved. The father warns his son, the ways of those who are greedy is a way that leads only to death. You think you will get what you want, but you will find that it will take away your life. Like with Bernie Madoff, our evil deeds, they will eventually catch up with us. Judgment awaits all who walk in the ways of sinners. So what hope do we have in the face of this, this offer of sinners, in the face of our own desires to crave and covet, which crave and covet? What hope do we have? Brothers and sisters, we serve a God who is not greedy for unjust gain. We have a, a God who is generous who gives himself for sinners. 
The hope that we have in the face of our own sin is the only hope we can ever have, and that is in Jesus Christ. Rather than lying in wait for blood, do you know what Jesus did? He came and shed his blood for us. Peter writes in, in 1 Peter 2, 1, 2, 21 through 25, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was de- deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Brothers and sisters, for all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, this is true of you. Jesus has suffered in your place. He has shed his blood for you so that your blood doesn't need to be shed for your sins. By his wounds, you have been healed. So what do we do? How do we respond? Well, we walk in the goodness of what he has won for us. We live to righteousness. For we were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. The world around us cries out, Get, get what's yours. It cries out, take. It cries out, look out for yourself, your own interests. And Jesus comes, and this is his invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And I'm not going to get something, but I will give you rest. In a world that, that, that cries out, get, 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 be greedy, Jesus says, I will give. Not only did he give his life for us, but he gives us grace to now walk in obedience before him, to walk in wisdom. He is wisdom. So let us take his yoke and learn from him, for he is gentle and lowly in heart, and we will find rest for our souls. Amen. Father, thank you for this goodness and grace you show us in Jesus. Though we once were far off, we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. You don't lie in wait for the blood of your children. But you give yourself for us. So we thank you. We thank you. We hope in you. We trust in you. And Lord, would you help us to walk in obedience to your word? Help us to live according to the order that you have given to this world. Help us to live in light of the reality of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.